We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter Podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. And I'm joined by my new co-host, Nick Filato. I'm going to give you guys a little background here on Nick. But first, let me talk to you about the podcast. I know it's been a little bit of, a little bit of time before we had one of these. Um, there's been a little break in the pod. Nick Turchin, who obviously you guys know is the former co-host, um, got a job where I can't really divulge too many details on, but it's all really good news. And it has to do with all the hard work. And it's based on all the hard work he's put in, not just on this podcast, but across the board over the last couple of years, following his dream, pursuing his dream, and he can no longer do the podcast. And for a while, I was trying to figure out what to do with this podcast. We built such a strong following, thanks to you guys, all of the listeners, over the past year, it really grew. We're giving you Giants analysis, but it grew because of the analysis that we did. It grew because we're not like any other podcast. I did not want to go back to finding someone who can talk about the Giants' day-to-day moves and the roster and the salary cap, stuff that's good, stuff that we will talk about at times, but not the point of this pod. And I did not want to go back to that. I didn't want to give you what you can get from, I'm not going to drop names, but all the other Giants podcasts out there because they're all the same. I wanted to find someone who could help me continue along these ways of Big Blue Banter, and that's breaking down the All-22 film, going based on film evaluation in addition to analytics, in addition to stats, going based on what we see from this team, from that coach's film angle, and dropping nuggets that you might not be able to get elsewhere. And so finally, after a long, a long, uh, you know, went through a lot of great people who I tried to get to jump, jump on the podcast of host, and then I found my way to someone through a friend of mine, Mark Schofield, who, you know, you might know him uh, from Twitter. He does a lot of work in this in this regard. He's a big film guy. 
And he, you know, he sent me, dropped me a note when I asked him if he could join on the show. I really just wanted to do a, a guest pod with him to evaluate Daniel Jones' first start. But he, he pinpointed me in the direction of someone who is extremely talented and I'm extremely excited to bring to the show. And that's Nick Filato, who's going to be the new co-host. Nick Filato is a guy who you may not know, but you should know. He's a Jersey guy, first of all, which is awesome. He's got the last name Filato, which I like. He's a diehard Giants fan, so we're going to bring something new to the show. And guess what, guys? Now that I'm not covering the Giants on a day-to-day basis for 24-7 sports and now that I'm an NFL editor, I can be a little bit less, you know, a little bit more uh, – I, I don't want to say a little bit more of a fan of the Giants, but I can – I don't have to exactly, um, let's just say, beat around the bush when it comes to covering this team and my opinions of this team. Uh, Nick is a guy who was, form, was formerly in the Marines. He writes for Inside the Pylon, awesome website that breaks down tape. He was a teaching assistant and student at the Scouting Academy. I mean, without further ado, let's welcome him in. Nick, how's it going, buddy? Dan, I am absolutely honored to be on this podcast, joining you, talking about the team that I love. New York Giants fans, this is going to be a fun run, guys. We got Daniel Jones in town now. And guys, I suffered through those times with you. I suffered through that Jeff Garcia comeback win against the 49ers all those hard times and I was there for those high points and now I'm here to join you on this podcast with my man Dan Schneier and I'm ready to have a good old time quite the intro there from Nick I'm very excited to get him on this show um listen I spoke with Nick at length before we before we jumped on this pod uh you know we talked a lot about where we think the show can go and I think this show could be headed in a, a little bit of a different direction with Nick and it's the direction I'm excited about and that's no knock on Turchin but Nick's a different guy like I said Dyer Giants fan Jersey guy through and through so we'll see where this bad boy goes but at through at its heart it's going to be the same thing it has always been for last year the same thing we can pro- we promised you over the years it's going to be a breakdown of the all 22 evaluations based on the tape that's how we're doing it so Without further ado, let's jump into the game. Giants, their impressive victory over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I know, I know, it was a little bit lucky. They they had to they had to have a Matt game miss thirty four yard chip shot to win the game. But that's not the point here. The point is Daniel Jones debut got him a win. Kid looked unbelievable. Before we go into the details, we're going to break the podcast down as we have in the past, going section by section on different players and the coaching staff. I just wanted to get your overall thoughts on the game, Nick. Uh, Anything that stood out to you or anything that was interesting to you? I mean, I would have done the same exact thing Todd Bowles did. Todd Bowles is an excellent defensive mind, and he went in there. This is a rookie quarterback coming into our place, and they have Saquon Barkley. So what are we going to do? We are going to sell out to stop the run just like they did a week prior on Thursday Night Football against Christian McCaffrey and a hobbled Cam Newton. I thought that was an excellent game plan. And it worked to an extent until Danny Dimes started dropping Danny Dimes all over the place. Now, when it comes to the Giants, I love what Pat Shermer was doing. On the offensive side, utilizing Evan Ingram's athletic ability on horizontal mesh concepts and things along those lines as well. I think it was an excellent showing by Shermer, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that throughout this podcast. Yeah, no doubt, Nick, and we will. And it's funny you say that because we actually didn't discuss this before the pod, but we saw this game very similarly. I just posted a little thread on this on Twitter, but you're right. He really, Todd Bowles really did bring the game plan that he brought to Carolina the week before on Thursday night. Um, obviously, they had a little bit extra time, but it didn't matter. They wanted to sell out to stop Saquon Barkley. Now, two notes on that. First of all, it was said in the media before the week, Bruce Arian said, we're going to make Daniel Jones beat us. There was nothing, no surprise there. I don't know why he said that, because on the counterpoint, and similar to what Nick said, I agree 100% on this, 
Pat Shermer, who gets malign, much maligned uh, by Giants fans, much maligned Pat Shermer, is put together a really strong game plan. He really had a lot of plays in there to beat the coverages uh, and the blitzes that the Buccaneers are playing. Now, I'm a little less enthused, and we'll get to this, with some of the run, some of the decisions uh, Sherman made for a play-calling standpoint. Some of the runs he had were against fronts that just didn't make sense to me. He had six guys blocking eight guys a lot of the time, seven versus eight. Um, and the Bucks really were selling out to stop the run. They kept those extra defensive backs to stop the edge, and they, they crashed down. And it really looked like they were they were all focused. Their entire focus the entire time was stopping Saquon Barkley in the run game. So there were times I thought he ran when he should have passed. I'm not a huge fan of how often Pat Shermer runs the ball on first down. Uh, I tweeted that out during the game, and it's just something I've noticed through, uh, throughout his tenure. It's part of who he is. He wants to hashtag establish the run. Uh, he really does. And I don't, I don't totally blame him, especially when he has a guy like uh, Saquon Barkley in there. But there were times in this game it just didn't make sense to me based on the front the Bucks showed, and and it led to you know it led to plays where the Giants got negative yardage. But let's dive into this bad boy uh, a little bit more in depth, Nick, and let's start with Daniel Jones. So I want to know overall what were your thoughts on Jones? What did you see from him? Uh, any anything you want to talk about when it comes to Jones? And when it comes to Jones, and just like you. Uh, alluded to with Pat Shermer's play calling, how he was going to, on first down, going to Saquon Barkley early. It did somewhat set up that play action pass game on first down for Daniel Jones, especially on the boot actions, which happened a couple times throughout that game. But what can you say about this rookie quarterback? Showing cojones against pressure, poise in the pocket, flowing away from pressure, timing with his wide receivers, excellent arm strength from the far hash. He displayed all of these things in this matchup, and I couldn't be happier for the rookie quarterback. And as we all know, coming from Duke, did not have a lot of talent there on the offensive line, did not have a lot of talent there at the wide receiver position. He believe he led the FBS with the drop passes last season, but he showed incredible mental toughness and competitive toughness at the collegiate level, and that was on display in Tampa Bay. I couldn't be happier with the kid while also showing off his legs, man. Such an underrated part of his game. He adds such an extensive element to that playbook, the fact that he can elude pressure with his legs and pick up extra yardage, which he did time and time again against man coverage. We saw it on the last play of the game. He takes advantage. Nobody in quarterback spy, even with the quarterback spy, he was able to outrun them. He did that to Levante David a couple times as well one of the more talented linebackers in the league. I'm incredibly impressed. He showed a lot of precocious ability, breaking out the vocabulary words, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm just really excited for the future with this kid, somebody who was maligned in the beginning. A lot of Giants fans did not like the draft pick, thought Gettleman was out of his mind. But first start, we still have a long ways to go. But he really impressed us all. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot to talk about that I liked from Daniel Jones when I rewatched this game. For starters, you brought up a couple interesting points. The zone read is back. It's something the Giants wanted to use. It's something they haven't been able to use with Eli Manning. They used it uh, in the red zone for the touchdown on a play where Jones really showed off his athleticism because it was probably the right move to keep, right move to keep it there. It was a really interesting design by Shermer. He had the wide receiver coming in motion to the left just before the snap. I believe it was Russell Shepard, 81. And then he had the play action flowing to the left. So he's trying to get the entire defense flowing to the left. Jones kept it. But he had to beat a linebacker who really had a pretty good angle on him, which showed off impressive athleticism. Then, Nick, you talk about the zone read from earlier. Uh, or I'm sorry, the run from earlier where he beat Levante David with that 11-yard run. That was the one where Jones actually topped out, I believe, at 
19, a little bit over 19 miles per hour. It was the fastest, the third fastest run by a quarterback this week. And the other two faster ones were Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray. So let's just keep that in perspective. The four fastest runs this week by any quarterback were Lamar Jackson, Kyler Murray, and then Daniel Jones times two. He topped out at that speed twice on two separate runs. There was also a play in this game that I just tweeted about uh, and put on Twitter where he could have kept his own read, and, he, and and it looks like it was a first and ten play from inside the red zone. I believe this one was on the Giants' first drive, yeah. the drive where they it was had around like the twenty yard line or something like around that. The twenty right? yard line, yep. yeah. They had to settle for there was a drive where they had to settle for the field goal. Uh, I believe if I'm if I'm reading it right from my notes, and they ended up handing the ball off. It was no either no gain or a negative one uh, to Barkley because the Bucks completely crashed down on this and sold out. But if he had kept this one. The last offender, which was a defensive back, was already starting to take two steps towards the box to stop Barkley. Jones had the angle. This would have probably been a 20-yard touchdown. I just feel like based on everything we saw and the runs he did make, including the obviously the zone read touchdown we just talked about, this was probably a better angle than he had. This was definitely a better angle than he had in that, and it was only one defender to beat. So there was more to be had there. But then you also just talk about what he did as a passer. Like we talked about before, it was an awesome game plan for Pat Shermer, but it's crazy to me, Nick, and you could talk about if you saw this too, how much trust Jones already has in this system and in the play calling and in his receivers to get open at the time he thinks. And and in addition to that, the timing he had down with his receivers. Yeah, he showed excellent timing on a lot of those routes. And it was against man coverage zone. You saw him in zone coverage a few different times. He would hit his back foot. He would be going through his progressions. And the ball would already be out of his hands with Shaq Barrett basically barreling down on him and pressure coming with Sue and Vita Vea up the middle. The kid showed so much balls. Let's just lay it out. I said cojones before. Now it's balls. But again, zone coverage, I love what he did going through his progressions up. So this is the thing. I tried muting it before. You're going to hear the train in the background. I live by a train station. It's going to be annoying, but we're going to deal with it. But one play I wanted to point out, too, on that third and four conversion to Saquon before he went out of the game, when he rolled to the left and he showed that patience and poise and athletic ability going away from the pressure, and Saquon had the awareness to kind of get into the open field and run up field, Daniel Jones put that right on him, and that was just something early on in the game that you were like, okay, okay, we can mount some drives with this kid. Let's see what happens, and that was one excellent example of kind of how he utilized his ability to maneuver the pocket and keep his eyes downfield, which we see a lot of rookies do not do that. A lot of rookies will drop their eyes. They'll just look to scramble, run into somebody, get sacked. He keeps his eyes downfield, and he'll take those hits, and we also saw that with that Carl Nassib play where he didn't see Carl Nassib coming from the backside. But still, he was like, okay, now I can run. He got hit. There was a couple plays that Daniel Jones, it was uh, when they were down, it was a two-minute drill, kind of overthrew Russell Shepard. Play. See, that play with Shepard is actually interesting to me, Nick, because I wanted to point that one out, and I was going to put it on Twitter later. That So what, what, Nick's, talking, uh, what Nick's talking about here is uh, during the two-minute, it was a two-minute drill just before the halftime, actually. So Giants are trying to get some points on the board down a lot at this point based on uh, just, you know, defense giving up a lot of chunk yardage plays and some, some unfortunate uh, penalties that are put in on the offense side of ball. Anyway, this play is a deep post where I actually like this play, Nick, because I thought it was an awesome read. You could tell me if I'm wrong about this. I thought this was a great read by Jones because he saw the depth the safety was playing at. And based on where the safety was playing at, he knew he had this uh, deep post over the top to Russell Shepard. So before I go any further, would you agree with that? that the read was there to, to make that throw? Yeah, the read was definitely there. He just overthrew. He just put a little bit too much mustard on it. And it made me think if it was Slayton, would have 
that'd be a touchdown if it was yeah, someone just a little bit faster. About to say, my point is he did overthrow it slightly. He does put a decent amount of air under this ball, and I really think that based on and I rewatched this play like five times, Nick. I think that when when the Giants get Russell Shepard out of the game, no offense to Russell Shepard, great career special teamer, makes a couple plays when you give him them. Doesn't really have speed, in my opinion. And on this play, it looks like he's running in quicksand to me. It doesn't look like – looks like not only is he kind of died, he kind of gives up a little bit on the play. Or not, it might not even be him giving up on the play. Him just might not have the speed to catch up with this ball. Because this ball ends up dropping about – what does it look like? Three or four yards ahead of him. Uh, Something like that, I'd say, yeah. About, but it's not much more than that. It's really not that much of an overthrown ball. So I feel like if that's Slayton or if that's Golden Tate or if that's even Sterling Shepard – who will be the Giants' 11 personnel in a matter of weeks, pretty much. I think by the time Golden Tate is back from his suspension in week five, I think that's what the 11 personnel will look like with Slayton replacing Fowler and Slayton replacing Shepard and Cody Core and some of these guys who have been out there in some of their 11 personnel packages. And I really do feel like if we're going to give him a knock for that, which is fine because it is slightly overthrown, I don't know how bad of a knock. I'm going to give him a slight knock, Nick, because if that's a different receiver with any kind of speed, I think he runs under that, and it could be a touchdown. And I love the read by him there. So for me, and you touched on this before, Nick, and I just want to get into this quickly before you know we move to the next part of this. I was super impressed uh, with how Jones was able – like you said, Jones keeps his eyes downfield all the time, and obviously that led to a few mistakes, which we'll touch on in a second. But um, I was super impressed with his ability to stay in the pocket – and not flee the pocket. You see this happening a lot now with young quarterbacks on the night football. Baker Mayfield doesn't trust his offensive line, rolls out of the pocket a lot, breaks pocket. And then once he breaks pocket, he's moving backwards or laterally. He's really taking his eyes away from looking downfield. On the flip side, Jones was able, at least from my perspective here, Nick, to keep his eyes downfield at times. And at times, you know, some people might say to a fault uh, with the fumbles, which we'll get to in a second because, you know, yeah. I personally don't think – at least one of them was his fault. But what I thought was super impressive was just his poise here. He was stay, standing in the pocket, and you mentioned it before. People are knocking this Bucks defense down. They're talking about how they looked in 2018 and 2017. To me, that's just foolish. This Bucks defense added Shaq Barrett and Dom Sue, who have made a massive difference. It's a totally different defensive front, and it's a totally different defense with Todd Bowles than it ever was, by the way, exactly. with those guys on the front. And Vita Vea, who's playing better than he's ever played before in his career, very healthy. And, or I guess he's more healthy than he has been, whatever it is. He likes this, the new system he's in. Whatever it is, he's playing better football. That's something I've noticed. So you've got those three on the front, at the very least. Uh, and it would have been interesting to see how this team would have looked with JPP on there, too, um, on that defensive front. But this is not some slouch team that the Giants faced here and Daniel Jones faced. But, yeah, like I said, I thought it was impressive how much poise. I thought, you know, he was, he was doing things that, you know, you would see from veterans – that are just so trustworthy of the offensive system then they were in. It looked like Jones at all times knew where the right read was and where to go with the ball. You talk about the third and nine where early in the game where he drifted to his left, took two steps and threw Sterling Shepard open. It's the anticipation on the final drive with the, with the deep pass to, to, to Darius Slayton that he hit on the comeback there. There's just a lot of plays there that just did not look to me like a rookie quarterback making his first start. Exactly. Um, Exactly. Oh. So the anticipation on that one uh, Yankee concept that they found Slayton way down the field, the Yankee concept, you have the crosser and then you have the deep, deep post right. Slayton wide open. He put the 
right where it needed to be when it comes to anticipation, timing, accuracy, all the things you're looking for in a young quarterback that usually don't get, especially somebody making the first start on the road. Yeah, and are you talking about this late in uh, the deep slant where where he, where Parrott nearly slapped, sacked him and then he rolled to his left and made the and made the and made the pass? Yes, he flowed towards Carl Nassib, but right. Shaq was right on him, and he just gets the ball out, gets hit, and it's right on the money to his fellow rookie, fifth round pick, Darius yeah, that, Slayton. That might have been the best throw of the game by by Slayton. I mean, I'm sorry, by by uh, Joe <laughs> Slayton there. And what was so impressive about that to me is there was a lot of talk about can Jones make throws. From off, uh, from you know, off-platform throws. Can he make throws when he doesn't have his feet set and he can't, and he can't uh, kind of step into throws? And on that one, he is kind of flowing towards the line of scrimmage, so he's somewhat stepping into throw, but he's not on balance there and he's not on platform. And yet, that ball is led really well, and it's a really accurate ball placement. So that, to me, was the most impressive throw I think he made all game. Um, and there was just little things that really stood out to me here, Nick. Uh, on the two-point conversion to Sterling Shepard after the Giants scored the touchdown with Ingram to kind of cut the lead. I thought that he did an excellent job of resetting his feet in the pocket after kind of having his body turned towards the right. The concept was Sterling Shepard started on the right side of the line of scrimmage in a bunch and worked his way all the way back across the line of scrimmage to the left. And Jones just did a really good job there, just quietly resetting his feet to get himself prepared to make that throw to the left. And the ball's right on the money. And you talked about it best. I mean, even that Evan Ingram 75-yard touchdown, people making that seem like it's a really easy throw to make. Maybe that maybe it seems easy to you, but to have that kind of perfect timing on the throw with the defender kind of bare, there was a defender kind of running under it. He kind of misread it. It was a Bucks defender who's kind of running, rushing back towards the right side of the line of scrimmage after the play action, uh, which just kind of flow right um, and uh, flow towards the Giants. Right. And and he kind of throws that ball right on perfect time with Ingram in the perfect spot to give him yards after the catch. That's something we talked about a lot on the on the old on the podcast with Turch and Flotto. I wanted to hear if you saw this too. I felt like Jones, we feel like Jones throws a really good runner's ball, giving his receivers room to run after the catch. It's something we didn't feel like the Giants had with Eli Manning uh, at the quarterback position. Is that something you noticed in this game? He most certainly did. There were a couple throws where he didn't, hence the one one-handed catch by yeah. Evan Ingram in the first. That was, again, early on in the game getting the jitters out, but he definitely did that on the 75-yard touchdown. I wanted to point out the uh, touchdown on the third and seven when they lined up with 11 personnel. They had the uh, tight end. They were in a three-by-one set, and Shepard ran a flag route with the number one and the number two receiver kind of just doing quick ins, Right. and he put it right in between the safety and the cornerback kind of towards the front pylon and not the back pylon because if it was back pylon it would have either been knocked out or could it even have been intercepted the ball was placed right where it needed to be and that's just very very impressive yeah that i mean that throw the touchdown on third and seven to shepherd is just so impressive for so many reasons because first of all let's just back it up for a second the giants had second and four second and goal from the four and they got the dreaded holding red zone with eli manning and i hate to say this, but this is not a referendum on manning at all but it is an improvement to the offense, let's be honest, with Jones in. And when they were in that second situation where they're backed up to the 14-yard line, second and goal from the 14, you could be certain at that point the drive was going to be over. It was going to be a field goal situation. But first, he hits the quick seven-yard or quick six-yarder to Russell Shepard to give him that chance on third and goal from the seven where he really does drop a dime. Let's just be honest. The ball is perfectly placed. Nick said it best. The ball can't be any fur, can't be in any other spot if he wants it caught by Sterling Shepard. And obviously, Shepard makes a great catch. It hits him in the hand, and he gets both feet in. But also, that throw was a pretty decent. It was from a pretty decent distance. 
the Giants are set up on that play. Nick, you can tell me if I'm wrong. From the left hash, is that correct? Or the throws basically coming from the? I don't know if they're set up there, but the throws coming from the left hash with Jones there. Foul. If my memory serves me correctly, yeah, it was somewhat towards the center to the left, and he yeah, just kind of fades left. away and puts it right where it needs to be. Yeah, it's not an easy throw to make whatsoever. Um, a couple of more things on Jones before we move on, and, and obviously we're going to finish up with I want to hear your thoughts on the two fumbles and, and kind of, you know, if they were a product of him just keeping his eyes downfield or how he can – or the offensive line breaking down. But one more thing before we get there. Uh, on Monday, two former quarterbacks, Nick, Kurt Warner and Dan Orlovsky, both said that they – well, Warner th- said it was the most impressive game he's seen from any quarterback this year, which is a wild statement to make with Patrick Mahomes in the NFL. But whatever, yes. we'll take it. <laughs> But more importantly, both of them pointed out something that was interesting to me. They both said that Jones made the correct read on every single play. Now, to me, I saw a couple plays where, he, where I'm not sure if he made the right read. I want to hear from you, someone who obviously knows this game extremely well. You've been through that. We, we, we gave you, you know, we, we sang your praises at the beginning of the show, but it's not even your praises. It's, it's your background. It's the work that you put into this sport, into this game. So I want to know from your perspective watching the tape, did you think where did you where would you stand on Jones uh, as far as his the reads he was making goes? I mean, the one read where Mike Edwards almost intercepted it that was really uh, kind of concerning. He was just trying to force the ball. It was a too high look, and he was getting baited the entire time. Mike Edwards knew exactly what he was doing. And then there was the red zone play where he was rolling to his right. It was a kind of like a bunch. I want to say it was a tight end who stayed in to block. And then there was. The number two receiver who was on the line of scrimmage did kind of like a seven towards the back pylon, and then there was a pivot route underneath. It was open for about maybe a second, a second and a half, and Daniel Jones could have squeezed it in there. He had his eyes up. He kind of just missed it, and it was too late. And We didn't end up scoring on that play, but we ended up scoring on the drive. Those are just a couple plays that he wasn't perfect on. But again, I feel like we're nitpicking at this point. This is a rookie making his first start, and those are a couple things that I saw where I was like, if this was Eli Manning, would we be saying you have to make that throw, yada, yada? Maybe, but I'm not going to sit here and bash this kid for a couple reads that he might have been a little bit off on or a little bit late on. The kid played incredibly well. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. The, the PA rollout in the, the bootleg action, something that, you know, Giants fans have seen far too many times over the last, I guess, before this game, the last 18 games missed with Eli. I didn't see that read fast either. That's a tough read to see fast. The ball has to come out super fast, and it has to come out basically when he's on the run, on the roll, which actually was something that me and Nick and me and Turchin talked about when we first broke down his Duke tape on this podcast, that we actually liked his accuracy while on the run. Um, that showed up. That didn't show up as much in this game because he didn't really make any of those throws. Really, he did an excellent job of re- on, the, on, the, on the scramble play to Barkley for 20 yards. He did an excellent job of resetting his body, resetting his feet to some extent and squaring his shoulders on the throw to Slayton, similar type of thing. He kind of reset a little bit before making that deep post to Slayton. But it's something I think we'll see in the future. I think this playbook's only going to expand with Jones in the game. We're going to see a lot more of that boot action throws off the boot. Um, So we'll see. But before we close the book on Jones, um, what do you make of the two fumbles uh, in general? And who, who would you pin the blame on for those? I mean, the, he does have his eyes up. He's watching downfield. Is he holding onto the ball too long? I don't think that he's necessarily holding onto it too long. He's trying to wait for the perfect play. And in the NFL, things move very fast. You cannot do that all the time, especially when your offensive line is kind of being abused a little bit. Shaq Barrett was stealing Nate Solder's lunch money all game. We saw it time and time again. And this was a concern for Daniel Jones. The fumbles, the fumbles. We always heard that. And it's probably going to keep being concerned until he kind of develops – 
an aw- more of an awareness because we did sh- see an awareness from a rookie, but he needs to develop a little bit more of an awareness that the pocket is really constricting and he either needs to tuck it or just go down. And that's that was a knock on Eli a lot that he went down. And you know what? It was frustrating to see in certain instances, but there were times that that mitigated fumbles for sure. We saw that the last three years. Eli would sense the pressure. And what would he do? Just tuck and fall. Now, I'm not suggesting that Daniel Jones does that, but that is one way to mitigate fumbles when the pocket is becoming incredibly constricted now i think it's just a combination football is a team game it's the offensive line it's daniel jones it's the receivers for not getting open it could be the play calling for context if there is no check down or is no route that is open granted this is something that i feel will improve but it's something that giants fans are going to have to deal with in the short term and the one fumble, too, I want to say, I know we're going to be knocking Solder, and Solder did have a really, really bad game, but I want to say it was just a miscommunication between him and Hernandez because Solder kind of set outward, and he was blocking Shaq Barrett into where he thought Hernandez was going to be, and right. then Hernandez just was not there. And that's something that we saw a lot last year with Hernandez, which is concerning that offensive line you're hoping as they continue to play together to just be able to be more cohesive for more continuity, C-words, and then they can actually be effective for Daniel Jones because we can't have that happen with somebody who is so prone to fumble the football. Yep, makes sense. All right, we'll close the book on Jones and we'll start to move over to another section of the game. Uh, We talked a little bit about it briefly uh, at the beginning of this podcast, Nick, but anything you want to add on Shermer's play selection in this game? Yeah, so I think the way he just opened the game, I love that. He came out 12 personnel. He was in shotgun, and he just had Rhett Ellison go over the center with Evan Ingram going a drag. Ellison, his main thing was just to create traffic, and that enabled Evan Ingram to just break open into the field. And I was looking at the play, and I was trying to see if it was maybe banjo coverage, something along those lines. Maybe it was a miscommunication in the center of the field with a linebacker. But anytime you can just create traffic and allow someone like Evan Ingram, someone incredibly athletic to break free against man coverage is something that you want to do. Yeah, and more on Shermer's play calling, though. He had terror concepts. He, again, we did the Yankee concept. We did a lot of different kind of things that really enabled Daniel Jones to have high-low reads, which is something that you're trying to create. You're trying to put defenders in conflict. So he would isolate a defender, have a high-low read. Once that defender commits to either the high or the low, Daniel Jones would go after the other one. And that's something that is just a staple in basically every NFL passing offense. And it makes it easier on the quarterback that he doesn't have to do full field reads. Granted, he was doing that sometimes in this game, but I saw Shermer do that. So that's something that I Liked the fact that he did that towards the sidelines. He did that with a lot of, um, I saw a lot of clear outs with out routes, things along those lines. I saw a lot of just easier getting tear routes, smash concepts in the red zone, which we saw a couple times that he hit the uh, underneath defender. Didn't end up getting a touchdown on that play. I want to say that was late in the game, but it also set up the touchdown against man coverage. So I liked a lot of the little things like that, little spacing kind of routes against the zone coverage when they did run zone, which wasn't as much because Todd Bowles had a lot of man coverage. Really interesting things you note there, Nick. Well, first of all, let's start with the first play of the game, which was an 18-yarder to Evan Ingram. Love this play call by Shermer. And and the way I saw it here is it takes advantage of exactly what he knew the Bucks were going to do here. They're going to be aggressive. They blitz that fifth guy. They throw, they throw a fifth defender in. Uh, it's a linebacker who was lined up in front of Ingram, uh, and he comes. Ac- Ingram comes across the, cr- the formation from left to right here on a crosser. This was the 18-yarder, and 
he takes advantage of something the Bucks continue to do, which was send five, sometimes six, seven blitzers uh, at the Giants, at Daniel Jones. And so key here is get rid of the ball quick, get rid of it on time, and get it to a spot, which we like to say, on the, which we in uh, Church and used to like to say, throw a runner's ball so he can make yardage after the catch. And that's exactly what Jones did. He put it on Ingram in a spot where Ingram could then create another eight to ten yards after the catch. And like you said, there was a little bit of confusion, it looked like, with the Bucks because the middle linebacker kind of carried over. And, and the linebacker, basically it looked like the linebackers there were kind of confused because the middle linebacker then darted over to, the, to, the, to uh, I guess, his right and the Giants' left where Barkley leaked out of the flat because he couldn't give Barkley that flat. And then that allowed Jones to kind of hit Ingram on the crosser because that middle linebacker didn't carry over with Ingram. And that's just one play there. I did think overall... Like you said, he did a great job. And this is nothing new, Nick. I mean, last year was the same type of thing. Half-field reads with the high-low with Eli Manning. It just didn't work out as efficiently with Manning. Um, it maybe did that's, not, no. Maybe that's the reads. Maybe that's the balls that he put on. Put on. Maybe it's how quick he got rid of it. But it, And it could have also just been Shermer had a really good counter for what Bowles was doing and for the game plan. He knew, like you said, Bowles was going to be aggressive and he was going to use a lot of man coverage. And there's ways to beat that. When you know what's coming— there's ways to beat it. Um, yeah, just real quick, though. Another thing that uh, Sherman was doing was just the way he's incorporating Evan Ingram. Three by one sets who put Evan Ingram in the slot as the number three receiver, use him as a vertical stretch, which really just puts stress on the defense. Also, they would have three wide receivers to the field, and then he would have Evan Ingram on that weak side, most of the time in line, which sometimes it just kind of looks inconspicuous. And then he would run either vertical or drag routes. Then he would have that number three receiver on the three-by-one side, do a dig, and then that would create a high-low coming from opposite sides of the offense. I just love the way you really kind of incorporate your playmakers, and I think we can agree Evan Ingram is probably the best playmaker, arguably. Put Saquon out. Now that Shepard is back, he's obviously really effective as well. And I don't know if you saw this on film as well, but those RPOs, man. I think we're going to see more and more of those with the smoke screens and stuff like that. You saw – RPO smokescreen, I think he handed it off on the play, incorporating that zone read, and it's stuff that I'm excited to see and excited to see Shermer expound on this playbook now that he sees how effective Daniel Jones is in it and now that we have this mobile quarterback. Yeah, and one last thing, actually, Nick, before we get into Batcher, I just want to say this because it's something that stood out to me. I, In addition to kind of like just the play selection where I thought, you know, he was running at some fronts where the Giants had – you know, either 11 personnel or even 12, but seven or six blockers against eight or nine defenders, just situations where they're never going to win. I thought that there wasn't much diversity in the Giants run game. It was that, you know, Shermer loves the inside zone. It's the basis of the Giants run game uh, since he took over as head coach. But it seemed like the Bucks had the perfect game plan to stop the inside zone run. Uh, so that's something that stood out to me. Is that something you noticed out kind of just they had the inside zone figured out and there wasn't much diversity with the Giants run game? There was very few power plays, things like that. Is that something that you thought was kind of on Shermer or just kind of in the flow of the game? Yeah, well, first we were down by big, so I kind of took away from the run game. So in the second half, we didn't run as much. And I think the personnel of Tampa Bay, Vita Vey, Damakonsu, kind of those big boys, and the fact that they were kind of already selling out, that was their game plan to sell out to stop the run, also kind of attributed to that. But yeah, I didn't see a lot of power concepts. And, you know, just like you alluded to, Shermer is a zone kind of guy. But it's something that uh, I would like to see more of. But I think context of the game, given that, it was one of those things where it was going to be throw, throw, throw. So hopefully, if it was a more competitive game, we'll see more diversity in the running attack. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Maybe that's just, just, just uh, like I said, could yeah. very well have just been the flow of the game. 
And did you pick up on some of the some of the motions? I did like that. Some of the the times he used motions just to kind of help out the offense and assist the offense in either recognizing coverage that Bowles was running or to just kind of open up other receivers. I saw him do that a couple times. I think he did that on the uh, he motioned somebody from the bunch to the to a tight stack on the one touchdown run by yep. Uh, DJ. Yep. No, notice that too. That was also like I said. He that's something that. That's something actually that me and Turchin talked about a lot. We wanted to see so much more of that last year, just that pre-snap motion, something you see a lot with Nagy and Reed and some of the better play callers. And it seems like he kind of maybe just needed Daniel Jones in the game or maybe just athleticism at the quarterback position to kind of fully utilize that. We'll see if that's the case moving forward, though. That's something I'm definitely keeping an eye on as well. But let's move on a little bit to James Betcher's play selection, just James Betcher's game plan in general. What did you think of Betcher? James Betcher does his thing. Man coverage. And we saw that time and time again, a lot of cover one, one safety deep, one safety high kind of looks. And we saw Mike Evans do what Mike Evans does against uh, Janoris Jenkins. Janoris Jenkins could not cover him. And it was uh, something that I saw late in the game. I saw Betcher kind of go to more zone coverage, kind of incorporate more pattern matching kind of things where he would drop Connolly back and he would into like a robber zone kind of area into a hook zone which I believe kind of helped out. Like Connolly actually had he had an excellent game against the run, but I think obviously he had the interception, but just kind of occupying that middle of the field assisted that defense. Okay, so let's talk about – I have we have Jenkins as a section here, Nick, but let's talk about that real quick um, instead. So to what I saw here is – yeah, he, he okay, Jenkins doesn't have the recovery speed he used to have, but here's what I saw here at a, lot, a lot of the times. First of all – they put him on an island all the entire first half where they didn't have a safety over the top. He was playing way off coverage, and he was expected to keep up with six foot five, lengthy Mike Evans, who is one of the better receivers in the NFL when he gets going and when he's having one of those games. I also thought Jameis Winston put a lot of good balls out there. Like the first touchdown that Evans had, Jenkins was, had no safety help over the top. He was in basically, you know, on an island, off coverage, and James put it in a really good spot, and it was really tough for Jenkins to get back out there and recover there. I don't think his recovery speed is what it used to be. You obviously saw that. I mean, there was the 14-yard man beater they had on the first drive to the Bucks, where they just ran verticals on the right side and just kind of stopped. And it was it was Evans in the slot against Peppers, which is not not a good matchup either. But to me, it felt like it, it was not an easy. Let's just say they didn't put Jenkins in the best of spots with all the with all the island coverage. What did you think about in regards to that? No, and actually, I was joking with a buddy of mine. I was like, do you think they're doing this to him because he spoke out against the team? Because obviously last week he came out and he was disparaging the team because they couldn't get a pass rush, which they did a better job. Granted, the offensive line of Tampa is pretty bad. But yeah, no, you, you saw that time and time again. Mike Evans is one of the better receivers in the league, and you kind of need to roll safety help, and they just were not doing that, and it kept happening. Happened near the red zone, happened deep, happened at the end of the game. It was really right. freaking frustrating. As a Giants fan, but ended up getting the win, and it's something that I hope we're not going to do. I hope we learned our lesson. Yeah, and we'll see what happens with that. And as far as Betcher's go, Betcher's play selection goes, I want to talk about a few other things. To me, it was a super aggressive game plan, Nick, from the start. In the in the sense, he was just basically the way I saw it. He was basically telling the Bucks, "You can run on us." There were multiple occasions where he had his linebackers and the people who were in the box immediately clear the box at the snap, and the Bucks would kind of just run between the tackles. He had tons of fronts where it was kind of just like golden on the – and this is part of what me and Turchin talk about all the time. This defense, to me, is going to struggle against the run this year when teams want to run on them because they got rid of Snacks Harrison, and the old and, – and I actually think that while Damon Harrison wasn't 
<laughs> the best fit for the system. At the same time, maybe he is what the system needs because the Giants are using so many two, and I call them two defensive line fronts. That's what I'm going to refer to it as, Nick. When they have just two of those interior guys in the middle and then guys like Golden and Carter on the edge of their fronts to finish out what's basically essentially a four-man front, to me, that's two defensive linemen. Golden, Carter's 250 pounds, maybe 260. He's not a big guy. Golden, another undersized guy. When you put those guys on the line, I mean, there was a play, Nick, on fourth and one. Granted, the Bucks showed 11 personnel. It was a pretty tricky play because they had 11 personnel, but they had two big receivers in, Perryman and Godwin, uh, bunched and stacked to the left. And on this fourth and one, the personnel the Giants put out there was Olsen Pierre in the middle as one of the defensive linemen with B.J. Hill, Golden Carter, and then Haley in the box, Peppers in the box. And it was just the oh, easiest conclusion I ever saw. Do you know the play I'm referring to? I believe so, yeah, because I remember saying that's a very, very small box. They're just inviting the run. I don't understand some of the fronts that he put out there. A lot of the times, you know, they were just destroyed through the middle in the run game. I mean, there was a stretch of plays on the Bucks' 10th drive of the game in the second half where it started with a great jump cut by Ronald Jones for five yards, but then it was a gaping hole on second and five, first down, then a seven-yard gain for Jones right through the middle, and then second and three, Jones finds goes right through the middle for four, first and ten, six yards for Jones. It seems like, to me, was it the case of this defense, run defense was worn out in the fourth quarter, Nick? Or was it because it seems like the Bucks were able to do what they wanted on the ground, in the ground game and just, you know. Yeah, and, the, and the situation was to run the football. But again, right. I think after Ogletree went down, it's like, who's your personnel? Yeah. Who are you going and to then Tay Davis went down as well. Exactly. And it was just one of those, yeah, Tay Davis leaves the game and we have we have 57 in there. And then I, who, I can't remember the other linebacker's name, but he jumps in there as well. And they're kind of, and I, I love the way Connolly played again, but yeah, they were just inviting the run and we could not stop them until it came time to stop them, to, re, to yeah. be honest. Inviting the run, and not only that, just weird soft runs. I mean, it's part of the game plan. I get it. Betcher was super aggressive. I mean, earlier in the game, it seems like he was more aggressive earlier in the game than later. We saw a couple, uh, you know, zero blitzes from, from Betcher early on. The touchdown with the touchdown was, was, yeah. with, was a zero blitz where it just sent both, there was no safety in the middle of the field. Um, and, you know, some of these blitzes work. I mean, they, they got to, to, to Jameis in the second, a lot more than people realize in this game. Um, you know, and we'll talk about some of those defenders a little bit more as we move forward. But I think, is that, can we can we close the book on Betcher there? Or is there anything else we wanted to touch on with Betcher? Yeah, I wanted to talk about how he was sure. scheming pressure, though, with some of those stunts. Like a yeah, lot of Because a lot of people, you know, want to give zero credit to Betcher. But I think he did a good job of that as well. So go, let's go, so go into that. Yeah, he was just having stunts. He would line up Golden at a linebacker position. He, he was using Golden a lot of different ways. I saw him lined up wide nine, and then he would just come right in and go right around whoever was the three technique. Now, I like the way the Giants were kind of rotating their one and three technique. Now, I didn't realize they did this as much until I started really like grinding the film. Right. Because you look at uh, Dexter Lawrence and you think, okay, he's 342 pounds. He's probably always the one technique, but he would be lined up at the three. They'd put BJ Hill at the one. They'd use Pierre Olsen in ways just like that as well. And using those stunts and kind of bringing – disguising their blitzes was something that kind of caught my eye. And they were actually getting pressure with four. And that's more of a testament yeah. to, I think I'll, I don't want to take anything away from the Giants, but that offensive line of the Buccaneers is not good. We watched O'Shane Zimenez. I mean, I put it on Twitter. The one, uh, he started outside, jab step outside, came back, chopped the outside arm of, I want to say it was Dotson, and yeah. then brought his opposite arm over. And when Dotson went to counter, O'Shane used his inside arm to just shove him on the ground, and that didn't result in a sack. But between him 
and Dexter Lawrence, they were just getting a lot of pressure. And they're both rookies in this league. And Marcus Golden kind of was playing with his hair on fire, just like he used to back at Mizzou. And I kind of like how they were getting this pressure because it was motivating, something that we as Giants fans have not seen. Again, we'll see if they can do this against teams like Washington, teams like Minnesota down the stretch. But it's definitely something I wanted to point to when it comes to Betcher because, again, like you said, he has kind of been under the microscope and he was able to get the pressure without always bringing a lot of pressure, which he did early on in the game. A lot of five-man, six-man pressure, just like you said. And then again, on that touchdown, like we already alluded to, that was a seven-man pressure, which was not uh, advantageous to the New York Giants. Yeah. And listen, I know this is going to sound ridiculous, Nick, to some of the people listening, but I, I, I'm still a James Vector fan. I always have been a fan of the way he schemes things up and, the, and, it, and in general, the play calls he had. And I thought there were signs of improvement here from the defense in this game, especially in the second half. And I thought there were signs of improvement for this defense over the last two weeks in the second half against the Bills as well. So we'll see how that goes moving forward. But as we transition a little bit, I wanted to touch on the Giants wide receivers in this game. Sterling Shepard had 100 yards, 7 for 100. Uh, Evan Ingram, obviously we know what kind of game he had. Darius Slayton, three catches for 86 yards, three really, really big catches. Um, so what did you see from some of the receivers, anyone you wanted to pinpoint? And when it comes to Darius Slayton, I like the way that he, first off, he's been injured. So he comes back. He's a rookie. He's in the NFL. He's on the road. There's a lot of, it it could be a very intimidating environment, even though this kid played in the SEC. But he comes out, and what does he do early on? He struggles. Drops a couple catchable balls. But down the stretch, that speed, that trust is something that we saw. The fact that Shermer trusted him on that Yankee concept, on that deep over post. Daniel Jones dropped it right where it needed to be, and that's something, that speed explosiveness, this ability to just kind of separate, get the cornerback out of phase was something that I was impressed with when it comes to Darius Slayton. I wanted to allude to him because it's somebody that, rookie, rookie, maybe we can grow with this because the Giants receiving core isn't exactly deep. Sterling Shepard has dealt with injuries. He's back now. We're going to get Golden Tate back, which I'm incredibly excited about, get that Golden Domer in there to play with this Duke Blue Devil. But I was impressed how Slayton Battleback showed that mental toughness to get himself to a point where he made a gigantic play for this New York Giants offense. Yep, no doubt. I mean, like you said, he's going <laughs> to – we're talking about a rookie. Didn't have that many practice reps at the end of training camp and then preseason with Jones because of the injuries. Then he's been injured. And immediately coming back from injury in his first game makes such an impact. That's a really, really good sign. I mean – Yes, he was a fifth-round draft pick, so you might be like, why should we get that excited? But at the same time, he's a fifth-round draft pick who was drafted low, drafted that low for two reasons. One, he had, a, he had some issues with drops in college that, to me, are always get overrated because I thought his hands looked awesome in this game. The, the stop route he made, the comeback route he made on the game-winning two-minute drive yes. from, from Daniel Jones, that's an insane catch right there by him. So that's awesome. Uh, the, the catch he made on the, on the deep post wasn't a bad catch either. And then the catch he made when he came back, when Jones came back over the middle and got hit by Vita Bay, I believe it was, or threw that pass, that 14-yarder to Slayton where he got hit. That was an awesome throw by Jones, by the way. Standing in the pocket, standing tall, keeping his eyes downfield, throwing through the hit, maintaining accuracy. All the things I've seen from Jones so far. But anyway, those are three really big plays that changed the outcome of this game. So to be able to do that in your first start back from injury, you know, obviously all things considered there, it's really a good sign. And I think, like I said earlier, he's going to be a big part of the 11 personnel moving forward. Is there anything else you want to touch on from the receivers that stood out to you. I mean, Sterling Shepard just speaks for himself. I'm just glad to see him back on the field. He's one of the best route runners we've seen with the Giants. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of his more underrated qualities. Just uh, I'm excited to get Golden Tate 
I think that he can add a really unique element, and I'm excited to see how Pat Shermer uses trips and trio personnel with Tate and Shepard as the number two and the number three. Yep, agreed on that, and that'll be interesting. And as far as Sterling Shepard goes, it's something Nick would always talk about, Churchill would always talk about, and I, you know, it's something that that's kind of been on my mind because he mentioned he always thought he was the best route runner on the team when OBJ was there, and that's no disrespect to Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, it's just the way he saw the game, um, and I think that. With regards to Shepard, I hate to say it, but I think he's the type of receiver. His skill set could be unlocked with Daniel Jones at the quarterback position instead of Eli Manning. Because, you know, like we said, Jones has a little bit more of that poise in the pocket, a little bit more of a willingness to stay in there, take a hit, and make that throw at the last second. We saw a lot of those routes where he hit Shepard uh, because he was willing to stay in the pocket and because he was willing to keep his eyes downfield and let that route develop. And, Henny, and Jones and Shepard both had trust in that route getting open even though some of those were deeper routes. And there was even a play that Jones just missed. I thought it was actually Jones's, I guess we can say one of his worst throws of the game where it was kind of that deep over route to Shepard. I'm trying to remember when it was uh, in the game here, Nick. I'm not sure if you remember it. It was, a, it was thrown a little slightly ahead of him with a lot of heat on it. Do you know what I'm talking about? I want to say I do remember that one. And uh, there was another overthrow. Well, it could have been a catchable ball to Slayton, I want to say, on the sideline, but it was right. just out of his reach. I think those right. were the two that throws. That was nice. Yeah, that throw was just out of his reach. That was early in the game. That one was over the top down the right hash. Another yes. throw was over. But I, this one was kind of the middle of the field, more of a 15, 20-yard range. He just missed Shepard. But the point is he kept his eyes downfield, and he let that route develop, and there was nothing open on that play except for that deep over. That was the only possibility. Uh, Jones came back to that read and just missed the throw. Something I think they'll get better on as they practice again. So impressive to me is the fact that these guys have not had that much time together, not that much reps, not that many. You know, they haven't had the opportunity to really build that rapport together. Um, this was their first week practicing together, uh, Sterling Shepard and Jones. So I'm excited to see where that goes. Let's transition here to the Giants offensive line, Nick. Um, obviously, we've talked about how we thought the Bucks had a good plan, game plan to stop the Giants run blocking uh, on the inside zone. How about in pass protection? Anything stand out to you specifically? I mean, everyone's going to point to Nate Solder and how he struggled against Shaq Barrett. Shaq Barrett has eight sacks this year. He leads the NFL. Like Countless pressure, yeah. Now, he might not be a huge name, but again, he was kind of buried, not almost buried on the depth chart, but he was, what, the third pass rusher for Denver for a while, and now he comes over. This guy, he's he's talented, but Solder was, he got turned around, I want to say, twice by him and it was spin moves it was rips it was clubs there's a lot of combinations and again we already alluded to the fact that hernandez might have been out of sync with him on the one sack uh fumble of daniel jones but solder is a bigger guy so when you're a bigger offensive tackle that leaves you susceptible to the rip move because it's basically leverage. If you line up in a Y9, and we saw Marcus Golden line up in the Y9 in this game, you can have that angle to where you gain the edge, you dip that inside shoulder as a pass rusher, you get underneath the arms of the offensive tackle, and you bring your inside arm as a pass rusher up and through, and that basically just knocks the arms of the offensive lineman off. We saw this happen to Solder, and he's susceptible to this. We saw this on the Patriots, where the Patriots run concepts where they just get the ball out of the hand because Tom Brady has such a quick release. And this was one of the concerns of bringing over an offensive tackle from the Patriots. Again, that and the fact that they have Dante Scarnecki, who is yeah. the man, the myth, the legend of offensive line coaches. But Solder struggled last year. He showed improvements. Didn't have too much of a problem with him through until this game. Again, we end up getting the win. It's something that's going to definitely suck going on is the fact that if he does keep struggling like this, we may need to keep Ellison or somebody, a running back in there, 
on these passing downs if the Giants are down throwing a lot to help him, especially against some of these pass rushers that we're going to end up seeing. We have Minnesota on our schedule. It's There's a lot of teams that, Marcus Lawrence, you guys know, have these pass rushers that can get after Daniel Jones. But Solder, we're going to need more from him. We made him the highest paid tackle at that time for a reason. Yeah, I'm definitely a little bit different than, than you on this one, Nick. Uh, and I know this is a big philosophical question among Giants Twitter. To me, okay, first of all, let me start by saying this. Shaq Barrett had an unbelievable game. He yes. went up against the pass rushers playing better than than, than than all but a handful of guys right now so far in this season. Regardless of what he's done prior in his career, none of that matters. It's what he's doing now. Now, as regards to are we going to need elite play from the left tackle just because you pay him an elite price, to me the answer is no because – I think everyone has this view of NFL offensive tackles like it's so easy to find an elite guy. And, and the only people who should be paid like elite guys are these elite guys. But in reality, there's only a few of them. They almost never hit the free agent market. They're really hard to find in the draft, in my opinion. They're, they, the bust rate is insanely high on, on first-round offensive tackles. You land them sometimes, but it's not it's not often. Obviously, one hit the market two years ago, a guy who I – or three years ago, a guy who made – begging the Giants to sign Andrew Whitworth, who should have never hit the market. And he was 36 at the time, or 35 at the time. So that's that's how rare it is for these guys to hit the market. Um, obviously, if Trent Williams becomes available, I'm down. Go after him. Get him. Take the cap hit, the dead cap hit from Solder, because it's going to be less uh, going into next year. But it's so unlikely. And so I'll take average play from that position until they could draft someone better. I wanted Andre Dillard in this draft. But you know what? As we'll get to in a few moments, I'm not... I'm, I'm not I'm not disappointed that they took Dexter Lawrence instead of him. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have paid him because I understand it's a market. You have a left. We needed a left tackle. All Giants fans understand that after seeing the Eric Flowers experiment. So I'm not saying that, oh, well, you definitely need to be elite if you get paid elite money. It's a market. If you're up to get paid, you're going to get paid. It's pretty simple when it comes to that. It's just I would expect more from this guy. I mean, fourth quarter, third and fifteen. That double swipe rip leverage, the way Shaq Barrett kind of established his half-man relationship and kind of just turned Dan- uh, Solder, I almost said Daniel Jones, Solder just around, that was concerning. And then just right again, gets turned around by Shaq Barrett two consecutive plays in a row. And that's just something that is concerning for me. And, I'm, and that's I feel like you. a lot of you see that you see the details on it. I, I look at the bigger picture here. Like I'm fine getting average play from from a position that's impossible to fill in the NFL. And the Giants would have had literally no one else playing there in a turnstile. But you look at the details. You can see some issues in his game that, you know, aren't even at that point. I mean, if he's making mistakes like that, back to back plays, that's concerning. I agree with that. Yeah, man. And then there was a I want to say it was a little bit earlier too. another spin move. He kept getting that with Barrett. But again, Barrett can end this season with 20 sacks for all we know. So he could just be this like new huge thing that people aren't talking about. He sure, certainly showed it in the last three games. So if that materializes, you'll be like, hey, if this was Khalil Mack that did this, would we be saying would we be uh, blaming Solder if, say, Shaq Barrett does materialize into a pass rusher that is around that ilk? I'm obviously not saying that he is right now. But if the consistency holds. So I just uh, that's just one thing with a rookie quarterback that with a rookie quarterback who has a lot of fumbling issues that if it continues to happen, it's going to piss off a lot of Giants fans. (laughs) I hear. And then obviously Mike Remmers wasn't wasn't great in this game either. Let's be honest. No, no. The uh, the right side definitely wasn't something that was uh, they just didn't really have uh, Shaq Barrett going up against that side. So that's another thing that goes that way. Oh, yeah. And that's something they're going to look to improve. I mean, Remmers is a stopgap solution. Exactly. Um, all right. Let's move on to Dexter Lawrence, a guy who, you know, 
we're, we're flipping into the defensive side of the ball um, here, unless there's anything else you wanted to get in on the offensive line. But I think we got it. Do you feel like we got that covered? Yeah, there was a couple plays by Jalapio uh, in run where he wasn't as sticky to his defender, where it was just kind of base block right one on one and he just couldn't hold his own. And I was like, mm, that's something that needs to be corrected if it continues. But we'll see how that materializes through the next couple weeks. It's interesting you say that because maybe that played a factor there and some of those inside zones not working. I, I feel like that's another position the Giants definitely have to keep in mind that needs to be upgraded center and right tackle. Those are two that are offensive tackle in general just to get a guy in there. That's something I think they should focus. Obviously, the draft's going to have a, a strong focus on the defense as well. But yeah, before you start thinking about adding skill position players to this roster because I think they're fine on there. I know people go crazy. They, always, they want Jerry Judy in this draft for some reason, which I don't understand at all. Uh, based on uh, after years of Jerry Reese, I just don't understand the infatuation with drafting, with dumping assets on wide receivers and skill position guys. But I digress. Point is, I think those two positions definitely could stand to be upgraded. Uh, Lapio's, you know, a guy that they picked up off the, he was a six round pick by the Patriots, cut by a bunch of teams, working as a car salesman. And it's a good story, but I don't know if he's the guy there for them. We'll see. Um, but let's flip into the defense side of the ball here. I thought Dexter Lawrence was awesome in this game, Nick. He had the play in the red zone at the end of the game, which, in my opinion, is a game-saving play, where he gets the pressure on Jameis, hits his hand to force the—they called it a fumble originally, or I guess it was in the second half at some point. They called it a fumble originally, and then obviously Ogletree tried to pick it up, and that's the play you ran down and pulled his hamstring on. But it it, it was was an incomplete pass that he forced by hitting Jameis' hand. And if he doesn't get that, it might be a touchdown there. Instead, the Bucks had to settle for a field goal. In the end, that's one of the big difference makers in the game. What did you see from Lawrence in addition to that play and just in general? Because he was, to me, he was getting pretty much the second most consistent pressure on this defense, I thought, uh, on the, at least on the defensive front. So what did you see from Lawrence? Yeah, it kind of goes against a lot of uh, Giants fans who were saying, why would you draft somebody who's 340 pounds? Because he was getting pressure, just like you said. I want to say it was the second quarter, third and seven. He lines up a three technique. Now, again, like we said before, a lot of people think he can just do one technique, but he absolutely bullies guard Alex Kappa. He reestablishes inside hand placement like twice, gets his hands up in the air, gets his pads lower than Kappa. And this is a really large man who is doing this. And he just dips that inside shoulder, gets his hands up. And for a quote unquote 342 pound nose tackle, gets the pressure on James forces an incompletion on that play. Like these are the kind of plays if you have interior pressure, then where's the quarterback going to step up? Now, the issue with the Giants is they don't necessarily have the edge pressure to kind of assist that. But if you have a nose tackle or a three technique because this guy can play both and he's shown that on the film that can kind of take up two blockers on the interior, that's going to allow the other pass rushers to be one-on-one. And that's when we need a guy to win one-on-one matchups now. We're not 100% sure if we have somebody who can do that consistently. But what Dexter Lawrence showed was kind of far beyond what I expected. And I can get egg on my face for that because I was somewhat critical of drafting him top 20. But I love what I saw from him, his ability. He's more flexible than you would think about for somebody of his size, his weight. And the fact that he can get that pressure is something that can really assist this Giants team. Yeah. I mean, listen, Nick, with regards to Lawrence, I think that a lot of it, and I'm not saying this this is – anything that you know not on you or anyone else but I think a lot of it that I saw on Twitter to me was regurgitated analysis and and in my opinion lazy analysis of him they said he's just a Damon Harrison clone I mean that never made sense to me 
his pressure per his according to Pro Football Focus during his freshman year he was one of the most that he he had the most pressures per one of the most pressures per snaps of all defensive linemen and that number stayed high even in his junior and sophomore year when he played a completely different position with Clemson one where he didn't have that many chances to rush the passer and when he was playing through injury and when he gets to the NFL you know he's going to go through the strength and conditioning program that he didn't have at college you know everything's going to change from that standpoint the Giants wanted him to cut uh, you know to get more to get into a different body frame than he was in to give him more chances. And as Gettleman said when he drafted him, he saw the same exact thing he saw with B.J. Hill the year before, who fell all the way into the third round. The Giants stole him there. We're about to get to Hill because Hill, to me, was equally, if not more impressive than Lawrence in this game. thought Hill was awesome. He made my notes all the time. But he saw the same thing with those two players, the ability to flip their hips. And that's just really, really, really good job by Gettleman. I know we're not going to make this a show about Gettleman. Gettleman's not going to get his due yet, but you know what? He's starting to trend that direction. I don't care what anyone says. And I know he makes a lot of bad moves, and I agree with that. He also, in my opinion, has no feel for the draft when you should be trading down, when you should be any of that stuff. But scouting-wise and evaluating these players coming from college, from the from the uh, amateur level to the pro level, to me, he's done an unbelievable job. Of. We're going to talk today about Dexter Lawrence, DJ Hill, Ryan Connolly, DeAndre Baker. These are guys that he drafted. And there's some of them he drafted in the fifth round. Some of them he drafted in the third round. Some of them he drafted at 20 overall. But anyway, that ability to flip his hips shows up in the tape. It showed oh. up in the preseason. Showed up now. Yeah, go ahead. No, yeah, just the ability to flip your hips, to swivel your hips. That's excellent for an edge rusher and these interior guys. And another thing about Dexter is the guy's motor. The guy plays through the whistle. There was one play in this game. I want to say there was two minutes left in the third where he tracked down. I think it was a slip. Yeah, he tracked down a slip screen all the way to the sideline and made the tackle on the backside. Like, that's not something you see somebody who's like 350 pounds doing. You know what I mean? And his hands are so active. And he actually has really quick hands, too. He's not just some big lumbering guy. And again, like you said, people painted a broad brush over him because he was big and Snacks was traded. And that was kind of like, oh, you traded Snacks for a fifth round and then you wasted a first round. That's I don't want to say I was in that camp. I just thought. The Giants had a lot of depth at that position with Dalvin Tomlinson and B.J. Hill, who play similar roles. But this Dexter Lawrence, I mean, getting that interior pressure, showing the competitive toughness, the motor, all those kind of things, his active hands, his ability to swivel his hips, his ability to get pressure on the quarterback are all traits that you're going to need in any aspect of football. Yep. Speaking of that defensive line, I thought B.J. Hill, who made my notes a bunch, like I said, played an awesome game, both first the run where, you know, he was put in some fronts where he was really the only big guy on that front, the only guy who could really make stops, and he made really good stops in the run game. Also had some pressures there, too, in the passing game. What did you see from Hill? I mean, that guy's just quick. (laughs) For a man of his size, he's quick. I want to say it was the uh, first play after Mike Evans' first touchdown. Uh, I want to say, yeah, first play after Mike Evans' first touchdown. It was a big play. uh, That was the play that was – maybe it wasn't the first – touchdown from Mike Evans, but it was a subsequent touchdown to uh, DJ's rushing touchdown. Hill beat DeMar Dotson's down block and just chased from the backside the rushing play. I want to say it was Peyton Barber. Oh, no, no, it was Rojo. My bad. And just from the backside, got him in the backfield. And it's just one of those things where it's like a man that size lined up in a three-tech position, crashing and beating the down block. That's exceptional right there. That speed, that's ability to keen diagnose, that's ability to recognize, and motor, ability to swivel your hips right there, to just turn your body like that on an angle, get to the running back, stuff you'd love to see from players like B.J. Hill. 
Yeah, and I mean, you saw the play that he made. It was really a combination of him, Connolly, and, and Tomlinson. But on that final Bucks drive, that 11th drive, before the Giants got the ball back through the scene, Giants were quick. The Giants were in a tough spot there. They they had the drive where they had the quick three and out. Where Barrett, in my opinion, this was the Giants' 11th drive. There was about four about four and change left, or, or around there, six and change maybe. And Barrett jumps off sides. I don't know why it wasn't called. He was off sides. I rewatched this play. I mean, it's close, but he's off sides. And then the Giants, which was interesting on this play, actually, Jones audible to that quick out to Russell Shepard to the right. It was the third and five. It was a quick three and out where they had Bowman run on first down for nothing for two yards, and then they had a quick throw to Ellison to get the third and five. But this was a 437 left when he jumped off sides here. Um, Giants gave the ball back to the Bucks at 437. And on the first down, Jones run, uh, Ronald Jones runs for eight yards. They're in second and two here. Now with clock rolling at 330. The game should be over at this point. The Bucks should be able to get this first down. And at, or not, maybe it's not over, but get to the point where the Giants get the ball back, even if they, go, if they punt after the next three downs, with under two minutes, with under probably a minute 30 at that point for Jones. Um, but on that second and two, Hill does such a good job in combination with Tomlinson and Connolly to make that stop for no gain, to set up for third and two, where the Bucks try to, you know, sneak Cameron Brait out of the flat, out of the backfield to the flat, and Michael Thomas makes that awesome tackle, game-saving tackle. But to get to that point, to get to that third down, first, first Hill has to make that play on second and two to stop Jones for no gain. So I'm with you. I thought he played an unbelievable game. Um, but speaking of another guy who was in on that play, or sorry, did you want to add on anything? Yeah, on no, that? no, that was an excellent play by BJ Hill, and you brought up Dalvin Tomlinson, so I just wanted to touch on him real quick. Third and two, right before the Bucks made that final field goal, Dalvin Tomlinson's ability to see what was going on and move from that opposite B yeah. gap over to the other B gap and make that tackle with Connolly to force that field goal to set up the Giants' win. That was amazing. That was quickness. That was ability to read. That was so many things that you would expect from like an Alabama defender. So many things that you would expect from somebody who continues to grow in the NFL. And that's why I love this defensive line. Not necessarily edge rushers, but Dalvin, BJ, Dexter. Those are guys that you can build around. Yeah, it was. And you know what? It's it's funny you mentioned that because I just wanted to throw one more thing because I was just looking through my notes as you as you were mentioning that. And there was also a play earlier that was so big for the game. Again, unheralded play. No one's going to talk about it. No one's going to know about it. It was the Bucks' tenth, ninth drive. They're driving down the field. First and ten, they got a five-yard gain. On second and five, they run again. Uh, and basically, B.J. Hill, I think this is the play you were talking about, where he comes across the formation to stop them for no gain. And then the next play was when Jameis throws the interception to Connolly. Is that what you were referring to earlier? Uh, like t- ten seconds ago? Yeah. like few minutes, No, yeah. The, the one I was referring to earlier was a third and two. I believe I put uh, put it on Twitter. It was a okay. third and two. It was Dalvin Tomlinson and Connolly that kind of made that play. And it led to the field, the last field goal by the Buccaneers. These three in general on the front were just – these were their big three on the front. Or I would say you can add Lawrence that. Those were the big four players making a difference in this game. And stopping these drives, that was this, that was the ninth drive, and that was the eleventh drive, and those are big stops that change the complexity of the game. There's not that many drives in football, and like if you have these drives continuing and the clock rolling, the Giants aren't going to get the chance they had to give Jones that last drive. But as we transition, I do want to hear your thoughts on Ryan Connolly, who to me played an unbelievable game. He's all over my notes. He's the most mentioned defender I have in my notes, both in the run game. Obviously, he made the interception as well, but mostly just in the run game. He was playing awesome, I thought, really diagnosing and stopping Jones on a lot of these plays. Uh, what did you see from Connolly? Connolly played exceptional, and I'm really glad he was able to bounce back from Frank Gore stealing his soul last week because that was <laughs> that was uh, something that was hard to watch for as a Giants fan. But 
the kid is just very effective and physical. You see, and this is a product, one of the many products of having a very large and very effective defensive line with Tomlinson Hill and Lawrence because they're bigger guys. They can kind of eat up blocks. They require double teams. Connolly scrapes over top and sees what's going on and diagnoses those blocking schemes so well to fill his gap. That is something that you do not usually see from a rookie, especially a rookie who was drafted on day three. And that interception play, what was it, a third and five, I want to say, and the Giants showed blitz. And I love the fact that they ended up rotating Antoine Bethea deep. And I want to say it was a pattern match again right there. Uh, yeah. Ryan Connolly, he dropped from that opposite A-gap to the far hash, right around the far hash. And then it was an errant throw by Jameis Winston that kind of just fell right into Connolly. But the fact that they were incorporating that, and I saw it a lot more in the third and fourth than you saw it in the first and second. So the second half, that must have been some sort of adjustment to use Ryan Connolly in pass coverage because he wasn't – he's a Wisconsin defender. A lot of Wisconsin defenders aren't heralded for their pass coverage, but he was effective there. And the fact that Betcher's kind of trusting him – granted, let's remember that we lost Tay Davis – we lost Ogletree, but the fact that he's still doing that and he was effective, came up with the big play, something that really kind of sparked me as a Giants fan. I was like, look at this rookie. We just had a bunch of rookies making plays. You got Daniel Jones, you got Ryan Connolly, you got Darius Slayton, you got Dexter Lawrence. This is freaking awesome <laughs> when you really look at it like that. But no, Connolly fills his gap very, very well, very, very aggressively in his ability to scrape over the top, keep it tight, and then stick. And he's a pretty sure tackler. I'm very happy with that from the rookie kid. Yeah, his quickness, his ability, like you said, to get back in coverage. There's just there's a lot to like about Connolly. He's someone who I liked a lot when when the Giants. I've been calling kind of all all offseason on Twitter for him to get into this into this uh, rotation, and then obviously now he's going to play a big role with Ogletree out um, most likely this week. He's not practicing today. This is two, uh, Wednesday when we're recording, um, and I think that Connolly's going to play an even bigger role. He is a guy who had the third quickest uh, ten yard split at the combine of any linebacker since 2010, which is an awesome stat because it's perfect for exactly what Betcher needs in this defense uh, from that player. And I think he's actually going to take over Ogletree's role in 2020 full-time when they think they're going to get rid of Ogletree and get back another, I think it's five, six million in cap space. Uh, I, think you're, I think you're right with that. And that 10-yard split, they were in base personnel. I want to say it was the second drive by the Buccaneers and Connolly. His intelligence is something I love, and he showed that 10-yard split because it was a zone blocking scheme, and he read it so quickly and shot the gap so quickly, ended up being a tackle for loss. And the ability to read, the ability to diagnose, and the ability to have, and the athletic ability to shoot like that is something that he's going to be beating guards to their spots, and that's something that we're gonna love as Giants fans. So I'm really excited for this kid's future. Yep, and we're talking about obviously a player who, you know, here's a fifth-round rookie. Earlier about a fifth-round rookie, Darius Slayton. About a third-rounder, B.J. Hill. I mean, there's a lot of guys that were recently drafted by this regime that are playing good football right now. So you can listen to the media who's telling you that the Giants have the worst general manager in the NFL. I just don't – I don't know if I see it. I, I, I don't – I've never really seen it. I, I obviously don't love Gettleman. We're not going to make this about Gettleman. And there's some moves that he makes that drive me crazy, and I don't think he's a good feel for the draft at all on the day of the draft. But – his evaluation of these players coming from the college game, like I said, the NFL. I don't know. I'm starting to get a little sold on it. Connolly has really impressed me. Uh, let's talk about another player he recent, recently drafted, Nick, who had a bit of struggles in the first two games and I thought played a much better game, and that's DeAndre Baker. What really impressed me the most about Baker and why I have him most in my notes 
is how he helped him in the run game. I thought he was a short tackler and in on a lot of the run stops. And he wasn't really called on much in coverage, uh, but he did limit Chris Godwin, who was uh, a breakout player in week two for the Bucks. What did you see from Baker? Is he making the improvements you want to see? Yes. I want to say it was early on in the game. I'm not even sure if I wrote it down, but I definitely made note of it. But I believe he was on the number two receiver to the field side. I think the Buccaneers won a three by one set and Baker got confused and the number two receiver was pretty open. And if James Winston noticed it, it would have been a very huge concern and we would be probably talking a little bit differently about DeAndre Baker. But outside of that, I had a lot of positive marks going through this game. He was staying in phase. He was keeping up with some of Godwin's double moves. And I was really, really intrigued. As you just said, the run support, he comes down and he is physical. He is aggressive as a contained defender, as an alley defender to just come down, hit low and just hold on. It's not something that no, I mean, I don't want to sit here and disparage Jackrabbit because he's had his issues with the tackle, but you don't see that with Baker. Baker showed it a lot down the stretch when you're tired, when you're beaten down. Baker was coming up and sticking the Buccaneers running back, sticking their wide receivers. And I was really just excited to see that because he's been all over the news. He's been all over Twitter. Oh man, DeAndre Baker, bust, first round, blah, blah, blah. He definitely stepped up here. I'm glad that you brought up the run support thing because that was my highest mark that I had for him. Yeah. Anyone else you want to talk about players-wise before we move to the questioners and the listeners? Is there anything else that needs to be covered here? I just think uh, we have to acknowledge O'Shane Zimenez because we don't really oh, have yeah. it. O'Shane or we don't really have pass rushers. And that's kind of our biggest need right now. And O'Shane played incredibly well in this game. I mean, I put it up on Twitter that one move it didn't result in anything. He ends up getting the sack. I want to say he has one and a half sacks on this year. And it's just one of those things where he's utilizing his counters incredibly well. And that's something that you don't always see from rookies. He's obviously not a stout against the run. He'll get bullied. But on these passing down situations, you can put him in. You can rely on him to know the nuances of rushing the passer, establish the half-man relationship, get a tackle going one way, utilize his quickness and his ability to execute the correct leverage to go back another way and rip through a tackle, which he showed in this game. So I really like what he's showing and his ability to kind of just get pressure, even though he's a rookie. And I mean, let's be honest, it's pretty thin at edge rusher. So to see him grow, I feel like he's further along than uh, Lorenzo Carter is, but I'm excited to kind of see him progress as these weeks keep going on. Yeah. I mean, like you, you mentioned it best, the Giants, what they said they liked the most about him was the fact that he had these counter moves and he had already had moves coming into the NFL. And, and it's interesting because you talk about it, one and a half sacks, Dan Salamone, who uh, covers the Giants in-house, one of their in-house guys, posted uh, something today that said for the first time since 1982, when individual sacks became an official statistic, only five rookies since then have had at least one and a half sacks entering week four. So for their first three rookie games. And Ximenez is one of them. So let's give the X-Man some credit there. Um, and again, the X-Man. I like X-Man. that. Yeah, that's that's his nickname. You not, not hear that one? No, I don't think I've uh, heard the X-Man. I just like to call him uh, XO or OX. Yeah, one. Either one works. But again, third round draft pick. Valuation from college to pros. Just go back to that. Anyway, if, if there's no more, nothing else we want to touch on in the game, you want to dive into the questions from the listeners. I know it's your first show, so this is part of the show as well, Nick. Uh, we talked about this, so it should get fun at times. All righty, let's do it. All right, let's do it. And obviously some of these will be repeats from what we already talked about, and we'll just kind of step through those. But some of them will, uh, will hopefully be able to provide you guys with the insight you're looking for. So um, Armchair GMS, Jones has a very high yards per, had a very high yards per attempt on play action 
but the Giants used play action on a low percentage of snaps on Sunday. With how much pressure he faced, I would have used more. Do you guys expect an uptick in play action moving forward? I mean, I personally think it's contextual with the game. We were down pretty heavy earlier on going into the third quarter. So I think as if, if we're not, if it's a closer game and it's more of a situation where we're going to be running the football, we will utilize play action. There were, I want to say, two drives where we started out, two or three drives where we started out with play action and receivers were open and Daniel Jones found them. And it was one of those things where I think – that we will be utilizing that later on. Now with Saquon out, it's not going to be as effective. I mean, that goes without saying, but I would expect it. I'm sure you share the same sentiment, Dan. Yeah, you got to use the play action, and it's going to be a bigger part of the the offense moving forward. I mean, there's tons of advanced studies and metrics that you can find out there anywhere that show the importance of using play action pass, the success on play action pass, the efficiency. So uh, I would with you there um, but but again though like we we need to establish the run first in order yeah. to have that be effective something that we did not do this game which is probably another reason why we didn't use it as much sunday so we'll see where that that leads going forward um armchair gm at, has another question he asked jones stays in the pocket with carnage around him to a flaw at times this is his opinion i would rather be him be fearless in there to a fault than bail early on clean packets do you agree with that or disagree with that? If he has a rushing lane, I am 100% fine with him taking those four or five yards even than maybe trying to do too much and getting hit, possibly injured, and fumbling the football. Jay Dodge asks, how did Daniel Jones play compared to all the comments in the preseason saying the offense was made easy for him and he's not doing that many – he's not making that many reads? I would say a lot of people are like skillets right now because they got a lot of egg on their face. So, yes, Shermer's play calling assisted him, but this kid balled out. He showed up, and I feel like all that preseason talk of – all that preseason nonsense of him just, is just a product of a simpler – or going up against talent that's not that good or a simple offense should be kind of thrown out. Because I think going into Tampa Bay and earning a win, and you could say, oh, well, if the kid made the field goal, it wouldn't be a win. Putting your team in a position to win means so much. So I do think a lot of people have egg on their face right now, and Daniel Jones should be happy. I'm sure Giants fans are happy. And we're going to leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of like people don't realize when they were saying this in the preseason, every quarterback is a system quarterback. You draft a quarterback to fit your system. That's the point of the NFL. Tons of Jared Goff, system quarterback. Tons of these players. I I get it. Patrick Mahomes, you see him making off, off, off script throws and crazy plays. He's also a system quarterback too. He's mastered the, what Andy Reid's doing there. And and Andy Reid gets receivers open better than anyone in the NFL, better than any offensive coordinator. That's, partially makes him partially at least a little bit of a system quarterback there as well so to me that never was a worry of mine it was never a concern um I just think that's he fits what Shermer likes to do a lot better than Eli a lot better than any quarterback we've seen really I think he fits it better than Keenum he has a better skill set to fit it so I think it's all good there this is our first podcast guys me and Nick we're getting this down me and the new Nick Pilato I might just start calling him Pilato I haven't made a decision yet on that or we might just call him Nick and just Pay homage to, to Turchin, who also helped make this what it is. But listen, it's a long one. It's the first one we knew it was going to be a long one. Uh, we got a lot. We had a lot to cover. That was a game that was 32-31 back and forth. A lot of guys needed to be pointed out. There was a lot to talk about with Jones. But personally, I had a great time on this pod with Lotto, and I'm really excited about where this is going to go. Hopefully, you guys will stick with us. I, I think you will. Um, not based on not, not not based on me being conceded by any means or any or anything like that. Just think that. We're putting out really good stuff that you guys are asking for. So on that note, guys, 
as, as I always like to close these podcasts off, um, before I can tell you guys where to find Nick on Twitter, you guys already know where to find me. Um, so let me just say this. It will really, really help us, and it always really does help us if you could not only share this podcast with your Giants fan friends, people want to learn more about the team, know about more about the team, but also just do us a favor on iTunes, download the podcast. Uh, even if you're just going to listen to it and you don't want to download it, if you're going to stream it, just download it. It helps us rate and review the podcast. These are big things from us. It's the only thing I'll ever ask from you guys, literally nothing else. Interact with us, ask us questions, and then just do us a favor and, and give us that 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 rating, uh, download, and review on iTunes, and that will really help us continue to grow the show uh, to different heights. Um, Nick, do you want to tell us, tell the fans where where they can follow you on Twitter? Yeah, so it's just at Nick Falato, not Fellatio, Falato, F-A-L-A-T-O. And, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. We can have a good time. We'll talk some Giants. We'll shoot the shit. It'll be a lot of fun. Hell, yeah. All right, guys, thanks again for tuning in, guys and gals, I should say. Um, really appreciate the support. Really happy that this, that this is back. And this, as I told you guys on the last one, which was actually like three weeks ago, this is my passion. This is my, especially now that I'm no longer covering the Giants on a day-to-day basis and my role has changed uh, in my career, it really gives me the creative outlet that I love. Um, and Nick is awesome. So I'm really excited about where this is going to go. Uh, on that note, guys, I'm glad you this podcast. Go Giants.